The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I'm Keisha Lynn. Andre Debuse III is best known for his novel House of Sand and Fog, which was a National Book Award finalist in 1999 and was made into a movie in 2003. He is also the author of a short story collection and two additional novels, the latest of which is titled the Garden of Last Days, it came out this year. His work has been awarded several honors, including a Pushcart Prize and inclusion in an edition of Best American Short Stories. Andre Debuse III, welcome. Thanks for having me. I have to say, I really enjoyed hearing about how this book was created, because I'm always, I always find it interesting how people ask writers, where do you get ideas from? Where do, how do novels spring from ideas? I want you to talk a little bit about the development of Garden of Last Days and where where that started? Well, after House of Sand and Fog, I spent about three years working on a novel that I've been trying to write for about 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I failed at it again, which is you know, normal. And, um, and that's really what happens for writers all the time, I think. I think most of the published work that people read of writers, certainly for me, is you know, a phoenix which, risen, which has risen from the ashes of what's failed. So anyway, I found myself wanting to start something else. And um, there's a wonderful essay by Flannery O'Connor called The Nature Name of Fiction. Mm -hmm. And just about every line's quotable, but here's one. She said, there is a certain grain of stupidity the writer can hardly do without. <laughs> and that is the quality of having to stare. Mm -hmm. And she goes on to say that writing is waiting. And, and she doesn't mean waiting till you're inspired, but there's a lot of staring that happens. And I've learned over the years not to panic when I have to do that. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I stared at my notebook for a while, uh, days, and, and maybe longer than that. And I, I began to see an image. Um, I saw a lot of images, but one that started floating around for a while was a wad of cash on a, on a bedroom bureau. And it wasn't my cash or my bureau or my wife's bureau. And over the years, I've really come to trust the imagination. I, I, you know, we all get one. You know, not just writers and people who are in the arts. Everybody gets an imagination. And, and over the years, and this mainly comes from years of working um, in the writing classroom, but also from having kids. I, not only do I believe that everybody gets an imagination, I think that every, I don't think anyone's is any better than anybody else's. Okay, so then what distinguishes those people who go on to write novels and make films and choreograph dance from those who don't? It's something else entirely, which we can get to. But... So I saw this image, and I and I, I wrote myself into it, you know, with language. And uh, quickly in the writing process, it became clear that they were tips. And then it became clear that this wad of cash on this bureau were not a restaurant worker's tips, but the tips of a stripper. And um, and then I knew where I'd gotten that image. It came from those strange little stories we'd read after 9/11, uh, that terrible day, that a lot of these young hijackers had been seen in strip clubs on both coasts of Florida, in New Jersey, in Vegas. Uh, some of them, a handful of them, actually hired a call girl in Boston the night before the attack. Uh, three others tried to hire a call girl and changed their minds. And I couldn't get my mind around that. You know, so how can you be so extremist in your interpretation of Islam to do this terrible deed, yet also go to strip clubs? But that's not even what had my, my curiosity so much as what would it be like, what would it be like to have been a woman who's danced naked for one of these men? And then after the smoke is cleared from that day, 
what's it like to have his blood money in your bank account? Mm -hmm. and, and that one question really gave birth to the whole, you know, five-year novel. The five-year process, in yeah. which you wrote a lot of pages, right? It was, I think the, the manuscript was about 800 pages when I turned it in. Yeah. Wow, wow. And then how long did it take to get it down? Because it's about it's a little over 500 pages right now. Yeah, I sh uh, with the help of my brutal editor at yeah. Norton, um, Elaine Salierno-Mason, a beautifully pr brilliant woman, uh, I shaved 250 pages off and actually got rid of six minor characters. Mm -hmm. Wow, really? Yeah. It was told from 14 points of view. But it was really interesting to hold all those voices together and to pull them together into a cohesive work. How much research did you do for this novel? More than I've ever done before, but it was mainly for um, the two characters of April, who is a stripper, and um, and she's a young single mom, as you know, and then, of course, for the young Saudi Arabian uh, terrorist. For that character, by the way, let me just back up on that. I didn't want him to come in. Yeah. About two years into the writing of the book, there's plenty going on in there without him, but um, I kept getting this strong intuitive pull from him as, as a character that he, that he wanted to have the microphone too, like everybody else in this multiple point of view novel, and I said, no, I'm not giving you the mic. No, no, yeah. I know what you guys are about. You kill 3,000 people, I'm not giving you the mic. But what's strange, I know this sounds strange to someone who doesn't write stories or novels, but it's, it's really weird how it takes on a life of its own. My resistance to letting him in felt like I had injected poison into this manuscript, and about a year into that resistance, I could feel the novel dying on me if I did not let this guy in. So, um, but I knew, not, I knew nothing about these people. So I stopped writing, and I actually uh, read eight hours a day for about five months. And um, I started by reading uh, the Quran cover to cover. Then I went and I read the history of Saudi Arabia. Then I read the history of Islam, on and on. I probably read 30 books. I interviewed an Arab scholar. I interviewed a Palestinian who lived in Saudi Arabia. All this stuff uh, for about five months until I felt I had enough learned information that I could maybe hopefully make that alchemy into experience. Um, for April, I, um, I knew nothing about strip clubs. It sounds disingenuous, but I went to one when went I was a 20-year-old yeah. at a bachelor party, mm -hmm. and I hadn't been back, and so I had to go to my wife and say, you know, honey, I need a little research. I gotta on this do research. Thing. I actually went to my wife and said that. Yeah. She says, she, yeah, I can't talk about it, but I think I need to go to Florida. And I actually went and interviewed strippers in Florida yeah. for a weekend. Did you find anybody who had been? I mean, what what kinds of stories did you learn? Well, I wasn't. I was purposely not uh, going there in my questions, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I'm, I, I may very well have spoken to some women who dance for some of these guys because I went to the clubs these guys are seen in. Um, but I would never, I didn't want to talk about that. I'll tell you why. I, I think that, you know, Hemingway has a great line. He said, not the whys, but the whats. Um, I think it's important to get the whats. You know, where do you put your money? Where's the dressing room? Where do you put your makeup? So get all the whats of a profession. But for me, the joy of writing is the discovery in that. And, and so I purposely don't ask interior questions like, how did you feel or what do you think? Or, because I, I, it's more fun actually to find that in the writing process. So I didn't mention any of that other stuff. I have to ask this question about House of Sand and Fog. Mm. This was, and I think you are the first person we've had sitting in this chair who has had a book picked by Oprah's Book Club. Mm. What was that phone call like? It was a good thing. Was it a good thing? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not on the school that is a bad thing. It was nothing but good. Yeah. Well, I was the first writer in her club. She didn't call. She called me a couple days later. Mm -hmm. she, 
She, I was the first one she didn't call directly. I, act, I actually, she was on a plane. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what happened. I got in, you know, my wife's a dancer. I'm a writer. I work as a carpenter. She works as a dance teacher. We're broke. We've got three kids. I expect to be broke the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. We have a beautiful life with creativity and kids. I come in, the phone rings, I pick it up, and it's a lady from Chicago, thick Midwestern accent. And she wants to, uh, she says, hey, um, uh, she, I was cooking, the kids were playing, I couldn't quite hear. Something about a book group. I thought she was reading, you know, her, she and her seven friends were having a book right. club at her house. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I thought it was going to be a conference call. Sure. Uh, when it became clear who she was calling for, uh, I just, uh, I, I was really, I, I asked straight out, I said, so, uh, how many people in this little club of yours? Mm -hmm. Oh, about a million. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Look, man, it was wonderful. I, um, it, well, how could it not be? You know, how many writers or painters or whatever the art form is slave for decades, um, create great work that no one pays attention to, Most. if at all, and sometimes they're dead for years. Right. So to get a wide readership for a book you spent four or five years working on is a blessing and a, and a beautiful thing. And, um, and then Oprah called a few days later and uh, really liked her and then, you know, took my 80-year-old mother-in-law out to the show in Chicago and she, she, Oprah gave her a limo. and. I've renamed my kids Oprah. Yeah. Love her. Beautiful woman. <laughs> you, got a, you got a picture of her on the wall in the house somewhere? My mother-in-law does. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, no kidding. We have actually talked quite a bit without mentioning your connection to the Writer's Workshop. Mm. And the connection is one generation removed. Because your father, Andre Debuse, was a short story writer, a great short story writer, great who was here in the 60s. He was a student and graduated with a Master of Fine Arts um, from the workshop. You were actually here. You were a young child. As a little kid, yeah. What do you remember about Iowa? Well, what I have a fun memory about Iowa. I remember a lot of drunken graduate parties in my house, oh, number yeah. one. <laughs> you know, my mom and dad were in their 20s. He just left the Marines. They had four kids. I'm the second oldest of the four. And... Um, so I remember a lot of loud parties where they, you know, they were broke graduate students, you know, pin, you know, put their quarters together by a six pack. <laughs> but here's a memory that's most sustaining for me. Um, my grandmother from the Louisiana brought us, bought us a little black and white TV because we really were poor. My dad was, uh, we were eating government cheese, and my dad was selling blood once a month, and um, so. My grandmother bought us a little TV set. It's 1964, five or six, and I was a little kid, and we watched Batman every afternoon. And every afternoon, the neighbor would walk down from his house, and he'd come in and he'd sit and watch it with us. And he's about 40 years old, and he had curly hair, and kind of a friendly face, and he was chain smoking. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, I remember sitting on the couch with him, and we're watching Batman, and we we, we liked him. And my parents seemed to know him and feel okay with him watching Batman with the kids. One day, he looks down and says, "Hey." Who's your favorite character? I said, um, False Face? Yeah, I like the Riddler, Kapow Kazowie. <laughs> and then I found out years later that was Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, wow. Who came over every oh, day to watch gosh. Batman. Yeah. You sat down with Kurt Vonnegut every to watch Batman. Every day watching Batman, chain smoking. Man, that's incredible. Yeah, wow. and so that's actually one of my lingering memories of Iowa, which is a sweet one. Yeah. That's Plus a, the girl I fell in love with across the street. Oh, okay. So now how often have this you how often have you gotten back here? This is my second time back. Second time back, okay. Since the sixties. Right. Oh wow. I came okay. here for House Santa Foggins second time back. Yeah, yeah. Um Iowa City we've had people who've come who have been were students more recently and then they come back and Iowa City changes of course quite a bit, but of course you're coming with the childhood perspective, so it's yeah. completely <laughs> Don't even ask. We won't even ask. Yeah, yeah. it was a big tree in a White House. Mm -hmm, on a street. A I remember it was Brown Street. I mm -hmm. remember the street was brick. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's still brick. Parts of it are. I think so. Um, you actually, it's interesting because you have writing in the family, mm. and yet it took you a while to get to being a writer. Actually, no. That's actually Not erroneous true. information that okay. somehow ended up at Random House. Oh, okay. Well, it took a while, and then I started after college. Right. Okay. But I, I started writing when I was about 21, 22. Oh, okay. And um, see, what happened was I worked all these weird night jobs. Mm -hmm. I worked as a bounty hunter, and that sounds more adventurous than it was. <laughs> I worked with uh, a, a private investigator. doing. I sat in a car and took notes. Mm -hmm. um, worked as a bartender. I did all these weird jobs because they were night jobs, and I like to write in the morning. I see. Okay. And um, so somewhere along the line, it got out there that I did all those jobs, then I started writing. But no, I actually did those jobs because I like to write in the morning. You like to write in the morning. That's and do you know why? Mm, why? Well, the Irish writer Ed O'Brien has a beautiful sentence about this. She said that she likes to write in the morning, she said, because that way she goes from the big room to the big room. Right. From the dream world of sleep to the dream world of writing. When you started out, you had, I mean, I was thinking about this. Stephen King's son at least is named Owen, okay, mm -hmm. Owen King, whereas you are Andre Debuse the third. It's okay. a pain in the butt. You know, that, and it didn't help you, did it, with, in no. terms of publishing? It didn't really do no, much for you. No, it actually probably hurt. I was talking about this at the Q&A thing here at the school this morning. Um, here's what happened. So I was heading off to get a Ph.D. in political social science. I was going to enter politics and fight for the poor people I grew up with was my 22-year-old thought. I had a lot of passion about that and um, because I just I hated cruelty and um, still do. And uh, I fell in love with a girl who was writing and I began to read fiction and I began to get inspired and I found myself, much to my surprise, writing fiction. And, the, and when I finished my first story when I was about 21 and a half years old, uh, I felt more like myself than I ever had in my life. I just felt like Andre for the first time. And um, and I still I still don't want to be a writer. And even uh, 10 years later, after having published a book and almost publishing a second, I still didn't call myself a writer. Uh, but I knew that if I, at a very young age, I knew that if I didn't write four, five, six days a week, at least for an hour or so, that I just wouldn't feel like me. Right. And I feel very lucky to have found something that spiritually focused so young. Mm -hmm. But I'm bringing it up because when I started to publish, you know, I forgot my father was a writer. <laughs> I actually said my first story out was Andre DeBuse. They said, yeah. uh, you got to do something about that. That's the problem, yeah. And, um, and my dad's one of my favorite writers. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't put a fake name on it. Yeah. In a part, you know, I could not put a fake name on this true feeling. Right, right. Um, and I, you know, I said, well, there's Alexander Dumas, Perrin Feast, there's right. Hank Williams. Now there are Hank Williams, say, three of them. There's a couple of them, yeah. Now yeah. there's Hank Sr., Hank Jr., Hank the Third. Hank the Third. So yeah. that's just a hand I got dealt. I'm going to play it. But it has been, um, you know, disorienting. And people still get confused and come up to me. House of Sand and Fog helped a lot because it, it did so well. Yeah. And, and actually, ironically, has brought readers to my father's work, right. which is a blessing. Yeah. Um, but look, man, I'm proud of my dad, and I'm proud to have his name. And um, but my sons have their own name. They have their own name. They are not Andre. There's no Andre Debuse the fourth. They are not in my family. No, no. Every kid gets his own name. Yeah. My family. Um, your father actually passed away the year that House of Sand and Fog was published. Is that yeah. right? He, two was, days after it came out. Did he? Was he? How did he feel about your being a writer? He was so generous and supportive and and beautiful about it. He. Um, so I, the first story I finished. Uh, he said good things about it. Then I sent my second story, which turned into my first published story. And um, 
he called me. I was in Colorado, and he called and said, well, you're going to be a writer. I said, no, I'm going to politics, man. I'm going to go fight for the working person. I'm going to go, no, you're a writer. I'm going to do something else. So said, no, you're a writer whether you think you are or not. And he always said that. And then once that became my life, um, he was one of the first guys I'd show my work to. I'd show my wife and some close friends and my agent. I'd show my father. And, and um, he was just generous and supportive. And, uh, you know, he believed much more in my work than I ever did and still do. And uh, he read House of Sand and Fog in manuscript. Uh, he said, oh, you're going to need a tuxedo. I said, what, are you getting married for the fourth time, <laughs> old man? Yeah. He was, he was what sociologists would call a serial monogamous. Oh, yeah. He said, no, you need those at the National Book Award. And I said, get out of here. Uh -huh. Shut up. I don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. So two days after the publication of the book, he died. Six months later, it got nominated for the National right. Book Award. And the whole, when I go to that ceremony, and when I went to that ceremony in, in uh, New York, mm -hmm. the whole time I'm putting on that tuxedo, I'm crying. Of course, yeah. You know, that's thinking about amazing. him. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really great that you had that kind of support in your family. I did. Very, yeah. very lucky to have that. You're teaching now, right? You teach I've been University teaching for a long time. Yeah, yeah. University of Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh -huh. Tell me, what kind of things do you want your students to take away from your class in okay. terms of, you know, writing and... You know, I, I say this to them, especially towards here we are towards the end of the semester, and um, if they're like me, they're not going to remember anything from school. Mm-hmm. I say, so if you remember anything at all from working with this one writer, um, remember this. I think the writing's larger than the writer. Yeah. The writing's smarter than the writer. The, write, the writing is truer than the writer. The writing um, goes someplace more mysterious um, than the writer can conceive in his or her brain. That I think there's a profound difference, and this sounds weird, I know, but I know you'll... <laughs> there's a profound difference between... Um, making it up on one hand right. and imagining it on the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that we can write the best scene we've ever written and, and the most crackling piece of dialogue we've ever written, yet, you know, that detector is going off that Hemingway talks about, and we just don't think it happened. Yeah. And we have to cut it mm -hmm. because we didn't imagine it. Imagining it is finding something that, and this is where it gets mysterious and kind of Ouija board weird. You just know it's true that he didn't sit down with her and have that conversation. He actually went for a drive down the road. And while the writing's not nearly as inspired and the, there's no dialogue you can brag about, it is a truer direction for the story. Right. So that is what I ask them to work on more than anything. And how do they react to that? I mean, it's one of those things. It's one thing to hear it, but then to actually do it. It goes back to what we were saying about writing being really scary, that right. your students... Um, you find yourself having... I always think of teaching, you know, you're, you're kind of holding these... I could say fragile, some of them aren't so fragile, these fragile minds in your hands, and you're trying to kind of guide them to a new place. And it's always such a wonderful thing when you see somebody get it, you yeah. know, when they, when they yeah. really understand. Again, you know, I'm all about, you know, here's to Ouija board weirdness, right, in terms yeah. of writing. That's one of those things you kind of, you have to do to experience. Yeah, and, and I think if, if they're heading that way in their spirit anyway, you can guide them there. But I love the way you're talking about teaching, Keisha, because there are a lot of bad teachers out there. Mm -hmm. A bad teacher is a destructive teacher. Mm -hmm. That's not to say it's immoral to lie to a student and say the writing is good when it's not. Mm -hmm. You've got to tell the truth. But, you know, I, I spent three years building my family home, and it would take 30 minutes to tear down. Yeah. You know, a 25-year-old boy's walking down the street. All the 25 years it took to make him what he is, one bullet's going to end him. It is easy to destruct. It is hard to construct. Right. And so I, I, I try to bring that energy into the classroom. Say, you know, we're going to be, we're going to work in here to find a way to tell the truth without tearing each other down. Yeah. And because here's 
what we haven't talked about. There is a relationship. I, you know, it's one thing, I'd like to protect the, the feelings of the writer in the room, but you know, they've got to be tough. You can't always do that. I'd like to protect the story that we're talking about, but sometimes you can't do that. What I think has to be protected uh, more than anything in that writing workshop is that sometimes tenuous connection the writer has with his or her own creativity. Mm -hmm. That has got to be protected. Absolutely. And there is language, and so, you know, actually in the writing workshop, I'm I control the language. Mm -hmm. It's not a democracy. It's a monarchy. Really? Yeah. I try to be a benevolent monarch, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. there are certain... You, you can say whatever your mind is, but you can't say... So there, there are certain ways to say it that's constructive in ways that are not... And, and what I'm trying to protect, though, is that relationship the writer has with his or her creativity, mm -hmm. because I cannot tell you how many dozens and dozens of people I've met over the years around this country and in other countries who come up to me and say they stopped writing because when they were nine, this teacher said this, right. or when they were 14, and Absolutely. this woman's 80 years old. Mm -hmm. yep. So we've got to watch that. We've got to watch that. There are a lot of those. Well, we encourage more... Ouija board weirdness. I've got to take that line. Yeah, I take love it. That. I'm going to take it. Andre Debuse III, it's been wonderful. Thank For you so too. much. Thank I'm trying you. to reach over and grab this book Thank so you. I can get it on the screen. Andre Debuse III's latest book is The Garden of Last Days. I'm Keisha Lynn. Thank you for joining us. Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.